But above all things that we give thanks for today, we give thanks, as Paul said, for God's indescribable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Indescribable means there's words that cannot even in any way define the gift that God has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we give thanks. And every day should be thanksgiving when we know Jesus Christ, right? thanksgiving for the gift that he has given and now as we enter into advent we think about him giving his son that God sent his son to be the savior of the world and so this Sunday we transition from thanksgiving season into our advent season and we celebrate that light has come To us who sat in the realms of darkness, in the shadow of death, on us the light has dawned. And that is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is the focus as we begin our Advent season. And this morning, how wonderful that as we begin our Advent season, we actually begin a new series of messages from the Gospel of Luke. And so we are starting uh, this series that is not just for Advent, but we're going to be continuing on. Uh, We'll have a few other things to focus on over the coming months, but I anticipate that for about the next 16 months or so, we're going to be taking a journey here through the Gospel of Luke, an amazing, amazing story of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, filled with living lessons for us today. And I'm so excited, along with the other pastors, to be able to share some of this with you. Now, the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice as you open there, it begins like a, uh, a book of history. It's introduced like a book of history, and it is. It's a history, but it is a special kind of history. It reminds us that all history is his story. That's what history is. History is his story. And so this morning, let's begin this journey into Advent season. Begin this journey in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to talk about the Gospel of his story. The Gospel of his story. Now, the Gospel of Luke was written by a man who had a historian's purpose. He had a historian's purpose. The first four verses, Julie did not read those. We're going to read those right now. You can see that as Luke introduces this story of the life of Christ, he does so with a historian's purpose. Let's read these four verses. Would you follow along? He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now clearly, this is introducing a history. 
It's not so clear about the historian because he, he doesn't tell us anything about himself. And so we need to begin there. You know, many times when you uh, receive a book, there's a little section that says about the author, okay? And most of the time, that's what the author wants you to know about him, okay? <laughs> the good stuff. The other stuff, just leave that off, okay? Find out for yourself, all right? But so let's begin thinking about the author here because here we're going to focus on the historian's profile. The historian's profile. Who is this writer? Before we plunge into his story, into his history, let's think about the writer himself. Now, he doesn't say who he is because he's writing to a friend. And when a friend says, you know, dear so-and-so, he doesn't immediately have to say who he is because he's writing to a friend. And he's writing to his friend Theophilus. Now, Theophilus actually means friend. The word Theophilus is a Greek word which means friend of God. Friend of God. Now, either this was the man's name, which was a common name in that day, or it's a, a name he took for himself as an early believer, as many Christians get, did, and called himself friend of God. Well, he is a friend of the author Luke. Now, Luke never mentions his own name in any of his writings, but he is often mentioned in the New Testament, especially by one of his dearest friends, the Apostle Paul. Luke is one of the very closest of companions and friends to the Apostle Paul. That's the reason Paul, in Colossians 4, verse 14, refers to him as the beloved physician. The beloved physician. Now, it's very clear if you read about Paul's life, he needed a physician with him. <laughs> it's good to have a doctor on his team. But Luke, we know this about him. He was not a first-generation Christian. Now, here's what I mean by that. He was not an eyewitness of the events of Jesus. He was not one of the original disciples of Jesus, but became a believer because of the testimony of people who were eyewitnesses. He tells us that in verse 2. Just as those from, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and they ministers, they were ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. You see, he says us. He received the message of Jesus Christ from those who were eyewitnesses and he became a believer in the Lord. Church history tells us that he was from Antioch which was in what is modern-day Western Turkey. But he joins the Apostle Paul in his ministry at a city by the name of Troas. You remember Paul was trying to go up into Galatia and preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Then he tried to go the other direction into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Well, if you're coming from the south and you can't go north and you can't go east, what direction does that lead? West. So Paul went west as far as he could go until he reached the ocean <laughs> at the town of Troas, and there he received the vision in the night of the man of Macedonia 
over in Greece saying, come over and help us. And in Acts 16, verse 10, the narrative says this, and we determined to go to Macedonia. It changes from they, talking about Peter, talking about Paul, they, and the narrative changes to we. So that is where Luke joined the team of the Apostle Paul. He was on the first missionary team that went to the continent of Europe. He, along with Paul and a handful of others, took the gospel west across the Mediterranean Sea into northern Greece called Macedonia. He took that journey around 50 to 51 A.D., so about 18, 19 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And for the next 16 or 17 years, Luke was Paul's nearly constant companion. He was with him all the time as a friend, as a fellow worker, a personal physician... And he's also a historian writing down everything that Paul is doing. And he travels with Paul through Greece. He travels with him through Asia Minor. He travels with him to Jerusalem. He travels with him to Caesarea where Paul is put in jail for two years. He's there when Paul appeals to Caesar and is sent on his way to Rome. He gets in the ship with Paul. He's driven by the same cyclone. He is shipwrecked on the island of Malta with Paul. And finally, he and Paul and their colleagues make it to Rome. And there in Rome, Paul is under house arrest. He's allowed to have his own rented home. He's able to receive friends. And that's where the book of Acts Ends. It ends with Paul in a rented house in Rome sharing the gospel in the capital of the empire. That's where Luke finishes his second volume because he wrote two volumes. Notice, if you would, how Luke began the book of Acts. Here's how he began the book of Acts. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, same man that he writes the gospel to. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now notice it says in the first book, O Theophilus, I wrote to you about the life of Jesus. He's talking about volume one. Volume one is the gospel of Luke that we call it. And volume two is the book of Acts. He wrote volume one before he wrote volume two. We know that Paul was in Rome about 63 AD. That's where the book of Acts ends. 
And so Luke finishes the gospel, the book of Acts, about 63 AD, and he's just finished earlier the book of the gospel of Luke, about 61, 62 AD. So what has Luke written? He's written two volumes, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and it covers a span of time, listen carefully, from 7 B.C., to 63 AD, 70 years of time, the book of Luke and the book of Acts covers that span. It begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, and it ends with Paul in Rome sharing the gospel to everybody who will come to his house. Two volumes. And you know what amount of the New Testament that is? 28% of the New Testament is these two volumes written by Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. Even more than the Apostle Paul. When it comes to the amount of his writing, he wrote 28% of the New Testament. And the last time he's mentioned, last time Luke is mentioned, Paul is in the dungeon. He's been arrested again a few years later. It's 67 AD. He's about to face capital punishment, certain death. He writes for Timothy to come as quickly as he can and bring John Mark with him. And here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you. He's very, very useful for the ministry. He's in the dungeon. He's alone. He's been forsaken by many people. But this friend of 17 years, this beloved brother Luke, is with him to the very end. We don't know about the end of Luke's life, but this is what church history tells us from ancient times. That Luke went on to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel all around the Roman area until his early 80s. And about the age of 84, a mob attacked him in central Greece and he was hanged on an olive tree and died. His body was taken down and buried in modern-day city of Thebes. There is a church there to this very day that's built over, as it's understood, to be the tomb of St. Luke. What a life. (laughs) What a life. Luke was a medical doctor, but he was most of all a devoted follower of Christ, and he was a devoted historian of the life of Christ in the ministry of the gospel of the apostles. And he writes with a historian's passion. Now you see this in these verses. I want you to look at verses 1 through 4. He's writing with a passion. He's passionate about the accuracy of the message. He doesn't want Theophilus to believe in some kind of myth or fable. 
But he's very, very determined that he will know the accuracy of what has been shared. And he says that everything in this gospel, everything in the gospel of Luke that he writes has been personally attested by eyewitnesses. Do you see that verse 2? By eyewitnesses. Scores and scores and scores of people who were eyewitnesses to all that Jesus said and did and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. Eyewitnesses. And he says, I have personally investigated these things. I wasn't there, but I have interviewed and investigated these things. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time. That's the word of an investigator. In the years that he was with the Apostle Paul, he met most of the key people and personages of the New Testament. He met the apostles. He met the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. He met people who saw Christ from the very time of his birth to his ascension. And he recorded all of it. He was determined to investigate it. He wrote it down. And so friends, this is what he shares with us. He shares with us a detailed investigation based on first-hand testimony of the life of Christ. And friends, I just want to say this to you this morning as a Christian. You do not have to check your mind at the door to become a believer in Jesus Christ. This is not a story of long, long ago and a handful of wacky people came up with this myth about Jesus. Listen carefully, church. Listen carefully. The most detailed, the most documented, and the most definitely corroborated life in history is the life of Jesus Christ. There is not one question of who Jesus Christ was, what he said, eyewitnesses by the hundreds attested to it, and scores wrote stories about it, and many were inspired to write the very word of God. Friends, there is absolute confidence that Jesus of Nazareth did the things the Bible says he did and the things he accomplished were really, really accomplished. Our faith is not in a fable. It's indefinite fact, historical fact. And Now, Luke writes with the accuracy on this message. He's interested in accuracy. He's passionate about it. But he's also passionate about clarity. Clarity of the meaning. So I have a question for you this morning. Why does Luke begin here? If he's going to write an account of the life of Jesus, why does he begin his history with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist? Why would he do that? Well, I thought you would never ask, so I was prepared with an answer. Keep your hand here in Luke chapter 1. Turn back to the left a few pages through Mark, through Matthew, and go to the last two pages or the last page of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Turn back to the book of Malachi, just a few pages back in your Bible to the left. 
And you're going to see that the Bible ends in the, in the Old Testament, it ends with a prophecy and a promise. There's a prophecy and a promise. Now, what is the prophecy and the promise that is the end of the Old Testament? Chapter 3, verse 1. God says through Malachi, Behold, are you there? Verse 1, chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice who is coming. First of all, verse 1 says, the Lord is coming. Notice that. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. And he is the messenger. He's the messenger of the covenant. What does that mean? The Lord is coming. And the Lord is bringing a message of a new covenant. This covenant is not the last one. What we call the old covenant. The messenger is coming. The messenger of the new covenant who is the Lord himself, he's coming. But notice, someone's coming before him. There's a messenger of the messenger. Look at verse 3. Behold, uh, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. There is someone who's going to be a messenger of the Lord. The Lord is the messenger of the covenant. He is the word made flesh. He's coming to bring a new covenant. But before he arrives, there's a messenger that's going to prepare the way for him. Notice God gives him another name. Look in chapter 4. The last two verses of the Old Testament. Notice what it says about this one who is coming. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now notice, he says Elijah is coming. And we might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, maybe I missed that story in the Bible where Elijah came back on the fiery chariot. I know how he got out of town on the fiery chariot, but when did he come back? He's not talking about Elijah in a personal sense. He's talking about the Elijah-like person who's coming. Now look at Luke chapter 1. Go back to our text. Here's what the angel said. Connect these two things. Malachi said by God, Elijah is coming. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And what does the angel Gabriel say to Zacharias about his son? Look at chapter 1 of Luke, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Gabriel's quoting Malachi. And he will go before him... In the spirit and power of whom? Elijah. 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Again, Gabriel is quoting Malachi. And the disobedient will be turned to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Jesus referred to John the Baptist as Elijah who came to make the world ready and prepared for him. Now, you see what Luke is doing? Now, this answers a question. Why is Luke starting with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist? Listen carefully, church. He is connecting the promises and the prophecies of the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament. He's connecting the promises and the prophecies of the Old Covenant about Messiah with Jesus of Nazareth, who is the messenger of the New Covenant. He is the Word made flesh. He is one who has come to make a New Covenant. And John is beginning his history by bringing those two together. And they come together, Luke says, in the life and ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, listen carefully, is the one who connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets saying, prepare, get ready, the Lord is coming. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. But John the Baptist is also at the same time the first of the New Testament witnesses. Because one day when he sees Jesus walking by the Jordan River, it's John the Baptist who points at him and says what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's John the Baptist bringing together the Old Testament and the New Testament. Get ready. He's coming. Prepare your hearts. Cleanse yourselves. Get ready. And then of all a sudden, he's here. <laughs> he's here. You know where John made that statement? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made it where he was baptizing. You know where he was baptizing? <laughs> he was baptizing in a little place called Bethany beyond Jordan. Not the Bethany, the village near Jerusalem, but across, just across the banks of the Jordan. Bethany beyond Jordan. The, the, the original name, listen, was Bethabara. Bethabara. You know what that means? Place of passage. That's where the Israelites came out of the wilderness after the 40 years and they crossed to the promised land. They crossed at the place called Bethabara. And that's where John is baptizing. He's baptizing at the very place where the people entered got out of their slavery and their wandering and finally to the land of promise. And that's where John is 
introducing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I want to tell you, God's awesome. Is he awesome or what? All the way down to the details. We are serving a God who is the God of all events. Friends, I want to tell you again, history is his story. He's in charge of all the details. Luke's greatest passion was not, though, the accuracy of the message or even the clarity of the meaning. You know what his biggest passion was as a historian? Listen up. It was the persuasion of the mind. Luke is concerned for his friend Theophilus. He wants to make sure that his faith is real and genuine and certain. He says in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Friends, Luke is a physician and Luke is a historian, but above all, he is an evangelist. He wants people to know Jesus. He wants his friend to know Jesus. Yes, he's a physician. You know what kind of physician I call Luke? I call Luke a neurocardiologist. He's a neurocardiologist. You said I never heard of that. That's because I made it up. All right. Neurocardiologist. Why do I say that? Because he speaks to the mind, neuro, but his target is the heart. He wants people to have a changed heart. Friends, it's not enough just to speak to somebody's mind about facts. You want to speak with a passion to the heart. You don't want just to give out information. Not if you're an evangelist. Not if your heart is filled with the glory of Jesus Christ. You're not interested in your people that listen to you or an individual listens to you. Having more information, you want to see transformation. Transformation. You want to see life's changed. And Luke is not content that his friend is confirmed in the facts of Jesus. He wants Theophilus to be confirmed in the faith of Jesus. It's not enough to believe about Jesus. Just being confirmed with the facts of Jesus is not enough. It is to be absolutely not just confirmed about the fact of Jesus, but confirmed in the faith in Jesus. Not believing only about Jesus, but believing on Jesus. Trusting Him. Relying on Him. That is saving faith. What is saving faith? You can spell it in English. F-A-I-T-H. What is saving faith? It means this, forsaking all, I trust him. F-A-I-T-H. Tell people that's what faith is. Forsaking all, I trust him. Friend, I want to ask you to examine your own faith this morning. Do you believe about Jesus? Or do you also not only believe about Jesus, have you believed on Jesus? Have you forsaken any hope but Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for your salvation? 
Have you forsaken all hope in any good works of earning your way to heaven? Have you forsaken any belief whatsoever that your confirmation or your catechism or your baptism somehow saved you? Is your only hope, is the only thing you would tell God Almighty if he were to ask you why he should let you into his heaven? Would your answer be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is the only hope I have. This, Lord God, apart from Jesus, I have nothing. My only hope is Jesus. Friend, if that's your sincere confession this morning, thank God he has wrought salvation in your heart. But if you are one of many who has believed in the mind, but you've never bowed your will to Jesus Christ as Lord, then you have not yet been saved. Forget this false teaching that you accept Jesus as your Savior, and then later on you decide to make Him Lord of your life. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. And you don't take part of Jesus just to save your soul. You receive Him for who He is. He is the Lord of glory who has been crucified for you and resurrected. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He is Lord. Will you bow your knee to Him? And if you'll call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Oh, that's the passion. That's the passion of Luke. He wants, them to be, he wants Theophilus to be confirmed in his faith in Jesus Christ. He writes with a historian's purpose, but just notice this for just a few minutes. He is also writing about historical events with historic life principles. This is what Luke's going to do. He's going to talk about historical events, things that really happened. But they were recorded in God's Word and inspired by God's Spirit so that as we read them, we can have historic life change take place in us. You see, historical means something just happened in time. Historic means it was time changing. It was life changing. This history that John is sharing here is filled with historic life changing lessons. Now just think of some of them this morning very quickly. I just share these with you for a few minutes. Number one, what do we learn in this story? We learn a lesson of God's faithfulness. You put your, we turned our finger from Luke chapter 1. And we went back over here to Malachi chapter 4. And you can just take out Mark and Matthew. You know how much is between those two pages of Scripture? 400 years. 400 years. They're referred to as the silent years. Because there was no prophetic word. But friend, I want you to know something. God's silence is not God's absence. <laughs> God's silence is not God's absence. You may not be hearing from Him as you think you should or have in the past, but don't ever let yourself be deceived. 
God's silence is not God's absence. He is ever-present. He is everywhere, all at once, all the time. God. God's silence is not God's absence. Here's another thing to remember. God's delay is not God's desertion. Some of you have been praying and praying and praying about something, and you think God has deserted you. Well, God delaying is not deserting. How long had Zechariah and, and Elizabeth prayed? <laughs> delay, delay, delay. But they had not been deserted. No Christian follower of Jesus can ever be deserted because he has said what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't go by your feelings because at times, you know what your feelings will say? Here's what your feelings will say. Sometimes my feelings say this to me. My feelings. God is nowhere. God is nowhere. That's how I feel sometimes. But you know what fact says to me? Fact says to me is this. God is now here. God is now here. You see, faith is determined by your focus. If you focus on your circumstances, sometimes you're going to feel like God's nowhere. But if you focus on the fact of God and the character of God and the promises of God, even when you're not feeling it, you'll be able to say in faith, God is now here. He's here. He is here. And I will praise him. I will praise him. There's another lesson. There's a lesson of God's patience, not just God's faithfulness. What's the difference between faithfulness and patience? God's faithfulness has to do with his promises. God's patience has to do with people. <laughs> people. God's patient. He was patient with Zechariah. Here is one of his servants who served the Lord in ministry for decades. He served the Lord. And what a statement of faith Zechariah makes in verse 18. What a statement of faith. He said this. How shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? How? How about an archangel standing in front of you? How about that? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to you with this message and I'm standing in front of you. And you say, how shall I know? Well, that's the last thing you're going to say for a while. <laughs> and next thing you're going to say, I know. <laughs> Aren't you glad God doesn't require perfect faith? Where would we be? God doesn't require perfect faith. I'm so grateful. Aren't you grateful Doubters are not disqualified. Doubters are not disqualified. The Bible is filled with king-sized doubters. Let me give you some names of king-sized doubters. Abraham doubted God. Sarah doubted God. Jacob doubted God. Gideon doubted God. David doubted God. David was a real king-sized doubter. Okay? All right, let's forget that. Elijah... 
<laughs> Elijah doubted God. I'm the only one left. Jeremiah doubted God. Thomas really doubted. Unless I can put my finger in this hand and my hand in his side, I will not believe. That's quite a doubt. Peter doubted. And every one of those men and women I've just mentioned to you were greatly used of God because God does not disqualify the doubters. It's what you do with your doubts, friends. What do you do with your doubts? God knows you have them. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to just sit and simmer them? Are you going to hug your doubts? Are you going to embrace your doubts? Or are you going to put them out on Facebook just to bless everybody else? Or maybe write them out and take Snapchats and send those blessings out. Take your doubts to God. Because I want to tell you about God. He's a doubt destroyer. When you get in the presence of God and tell him what you're feeling. Tell him you doubt. Tell him. You ever read Psalms? My word, David says some things to, to God. I'd be afraid to say even if I had a lightning rod over my head. But he's just opening up his heart. He's giving his doubts to God. And he's encouraging himself in the Lord. Take your doubts to the Lord. There's the lesson of God's faithfulness and lesson of God's patience. An incredible lesson of God's sovereignty. What a world. What a world was 7 BC. What a world. An oppressive dictator ruled the world, Augustus Caesar. A narcissistic monster governed the country. His name's Herod. There was an occupying army that controlled the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And there was lifeless religion being practiced in the temple and in the synagogues. And in the middle of all of that was an elderly man and woman who clung on to faith in God. Struggled, yes, but in the midst of all of that, God's master plan was being carried out. Friend, it does not matter the condition of this world. It does not matter how great the darkness, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. His master plan is being worked out and none can stay His hand. It will be done. His will will be done. And we are in the story. And even if you're not winning right now in your life, praise God, somebody else is. And if you don't see anybody else winning, you read your word. Thank God you're on the winning side and kingdom is going forward. You feel surrounded? Yes, we're surrounded at times, but we're never outnumbered. Because there are more than are with us than are lower than against us. Maybe a third of the angels did fall. Well, praise God, that means there's two angels for every demon, right? That's right. That, I'm just doing the math, okay? But it wouldn't matter if every angel had fallen from the grace of God and hated you. 
Your one almighty powerful God and heavenly Father is king over all. And if God is for us, what? Who can stand against us? Friends, listen. Don't you blow up the devil in your mind and make him some kind of demigod. He is not. There's one God. God and Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Worship Him. Believe in Him. He is your King. And there's a lesson of God's grace. (laughs) Humble people being honored. (laughs) Ordinary life. Just life. Ordinary stage of life. Extraordinary acts of God. Friends, listen. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, there's nothing about your life that's ordinary anymore. You are a living epistle being read by all men and written by the Spirit of God. Your life matters. You've been delivered from the ordinary. And by the grace of God and Him alone, your life matters. And believe it's extraordinary. Not that you're extraordinary, but in that your ordinary day-in, day-out things, God's doing extraordinary things. Personal disappointments are divine appointments. Not now does not mean not ever. If God says not now, it doesn't mean not ever. And if God says no, if God, the Heavenly Father, says no to you about something, it's to say yes to something much better. God's no's are just yes to something better. Aren't you glad now that all your prayers weren't answered? (laughs) Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, said, If God answered all my prayers, I would have married the wrong man five times. Zechariah and Elizabeth teach us one other thing. Listen up, my brothers and sisters of a certain age. Listen up. The elderly are essential in the kingdom of God. The elderly are essential. Thank God for these young people. Isn't that awesome? Thank God for these young people. The elderly are essential. They're essential to the young people to train up the next generation. Here's this old man and old woman in their older years are going to train up the man, the boy, who will become the man that Jesus said he's the greatest who's ever been born. That's what Jesus said of John the Baptist. There's never arisen one greater than him. I want to tell you, senior saints, listen to me. People of a certain age, you're essential. Pour your life into others. Pour your life into the next generation. As I get older and older, there is a psalm that becomes more and more precious to me. I call it the song of the senior saint. (laughs) And here it is. Listen up. Psalm 71, 17. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me. And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. 
So even to old age and gray hair, oh God, do not forsake me. Until, until what? Until I've parked it? Until I've eased away into my sunset years? No. Don't forsake me until I proclaim your glorious might to another generation and your power to all those who come. Your life, your story matters. Younger ones are listening. 